0: All right, Acts chapter 24. Previously, we had watched as Paul had come to Jerusalem, been rescued by the Roman army, been saved from an ambush that was trying to, uh, men that had taken an oath to kill Paul. The Roman soldiers had taken it upon themselves to transfer Paul as a prisoner under guard out of Jerusalem. So they couldn't kill him into Caesarea, the northern sort of headquarters for the Roman army and and the Roman governor there in Caesarea by the sea, more than 50 miles north of Jerusalem. And that's where the governor, whose name is Felix, we learned about him last week, Governor Felix invited the Jews from Jerusalem to also come so he could continue this trial of the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul is on trial, the Jews coming up from Jerusalem have brought with them their high-powered celebrity Johnny Cochran lawyer named Tertullus, you remember that, and last week we heard his arguments against the Apostle Paul. He argued that the Apostle Paul was a plague, was a dissenter and causing dissension among all the Jews and throughout the world, and he was a ringleader, of the sect of the Nazarenes, and he even tried to profane the temple. So the high-powered lawyer on behalf of the Jewish leadership lays out this case against the apostle Paul. Today we pick up verse 10. Now Paul, in front of the governor, gets to give his defense. He doesn't have a high-powered attorney. He doesn't even have a state-appointed attorney. He's going to represent himself. Paul was a brilliant guy, well-studied, and a great thinker, so he's able to defend himself. Verse 10 begins with, Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, so the governor gives him the nod, okay, it's your turn, he answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. If you remember the introduction that Tertullus gave, the high-powered lawyer, the, the orator, he heaped all this flattery on Felix to try to butter him up. And all of it was lies about how great a leader Felix was. Do you remember from last week? Was Felix a great leader? He was not a great governor. It caused a lot of problems. So Tertullus buttered him up. Paul is not going to engage in lies to forward his own agenda, to get his own uh, point made. He says something very truthful, and that's a good principle. You know, don't resort to lies, to butter somebody up. Find something good to say and say that. So there's not a whole lot good to say about this guy, but he says, oh, you've been a judge for a long time. Well, I guess we'll have to leave, leave it at that. <laughs> Can't really think of anything else to say. Mom was right, she said. If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. And sometimes you've got to get creative. So Paul says, and it's not without reason, he says, hey, Felix, I know you've been a judge of this nation for many years, and that's true. And that's important because he's saying, Felix, you would know if I was a plague because you would have heard about it already. You would know that if I was causing dissension in the Roman empire, you would have heard about it already. You would know that if I was really a ringleader, this would have come to your attention. So because you've been around, you would know it's not your first rodeo. You know that none of this stuff is true. He says, in fact, I've only been in Jerusalem for 12 days. You can't cause an epidemic, a plague. You can't become a plague in 12 days. takes time. You can't become a ringleader in 12 days. You can barely get a ring in 12 days, right? So they don't have any evidence to back this up. He says, I do more cheerfully answer for myself. He tells them these things, verse 12 And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city. They didn't find me there. That's not how this went down. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. So he says, look, Felix, they have no proof. But, verse 14, this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my father's, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. So he says, look, Felix, all that they're accusing me of being this and being that, they don't have any evidence of any of that. It's just hearsay. It's their word against my word. There's no evidence presented in the court. And it's sort of a um, a shameful thing to come to court without any evidence. They brought this case. They brought no evidence. And Paul says, if you're going to accuse me of something, verse 14, here's what I confess to you that I'm a follower of the way. They call it a sect. They said I'm a ringleader of this sect of Judaism called the Nazarenes. But actually, this is the thing called the way, and Felix is familiar with it. We'll find out. He understands the church, the Christians. Remember, back earlier in the book of Acts, being called Christians, nowadays, it's a very common thing for someone to say, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? That's common. In those days, It was a derogatory term. It was a belittling term. Oh, those are those little Christs. Initially, the church was called the way. Not a way, it was called the way. And named very aptly because we know that Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so his followers have come to know him, and in a way, know the way. They know the way. They know the way to God. They know the way to truth. They know the way to life. They know the way to joy. They know the way to forgiveness. They know the way to everlasting fulfillment and wholeness. He says, if you want to accuse me of something, I'm a follower of the way. They call it a sect, but that's, he says, that's the way I worship. We worship the same God, believing, not rejecting, believing all the things that are written in the law and the prophets. And Paul might say, actually, we believe that this way is the way that God fulfilled everything he talked about in the Old Testament, in the law, and the prophets, all fulfilled in Christ. Interesting, one thing I want to mention as we're going through this, notice Paul is defending himself. Now, this is a challenge because Felix, he wants to hear the case. And to hear the case, you've got to hear both sides. And one of the challenges in church, one of the challenges in society, one of the challenges on social media is that oftentimes people present their own side and it lacks evidence, but for most people that doesn't matter. You read it on that Facebook post or you hear about it from someone else in church, here's the thing that happened. And you go, really that happened? Paul's a ringleader? Imagine if Felix never actually had Paul be able to speak for himself. Imagine if he even just took what the Jews said. Well, these are Jews. They're the leaders. I, I, I guess I should just believe them. Never had any evidence. Never took the time. And Paul, a ringleader? leader? Really? He's a real? No way. I'm going to have to do something about that. We're going to have to take action right away. He's a, he's a plague. Oh. And the words start to fly. That's how gossip happens, right? And the challenge is most people, whether it's on social media or in the church, you hear it from somebody and what do you oftentimes neglect to do? You buy it right there, you take it right in and you never give the person a chance to speak for themselves. Don't you want that? I mean, if people are talking about you and you don't know it, if someone's saying something about you, accusing you of something, wouldn't you want the right to be able to speak for yourself about that thing? So shouldn't we give someone else if we're gonna hold this court shouldn't we give someone else the right to speak for themselves or, and not really believe it until we hear both sides? Some of the things I hear when I get involved in counseling, someone comes to me and says, oh, pastor, I got to talk to you. Okay, let's talk. What's going on? Well, you'll never believe what so-and-so did. And they start to lay out the story. And I'm like, oh, you know, I thought I'd heard it all. And wow, that's new. I can't believe it. And then I said, well, I, you know, I've been around long enough to know you got to hear the other side. The first person always seems right when they share it, but you got to be smart enough to know that there's always two sides or three sides or four sides. So you go to the other person and you go, well, this is what I've heard. Is this what's going? Oh, let me explain. And then they start to lay it out and they go, "Ah, oh, now I see. Now it makes sense. That's really different. Do you guys live in the same house? Like, is that <laughs> happening in the same? I don't know. I don't get it. The point being is oftentimes we present our case in front of a jury of one without anybody able to defend themselves. And it's detrimental to the church. It's detrimental to your life. It's detrimental to relationships. So please, church, as we're reading about this, uh, be at least as smart as the Roman governor and let both sides speak for themselves in a conflict because it'll save us all a lot of time, a lot of trouble, and a lot of heartache. Are you with me, church? Amen. But now you've got to go and do it you've got to be careful to those tidbits are so juicy aren't they we just love to hear the juicy tidbits but please hash them out please figure it out before you make your judgment about who's right and who's wrong and especially with me please if you hear well pastor steve did this or pastor steve thinks that or pastor steve does this please check with pastor steve <laughs> amen all right so This I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and prophets. I have hope in God, verse 15, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So they too accept, understand this hope in God, hope of what? Hope of resurrection. The Pharisees believed that, the Sadducees didn't. We talked about that. So many of these accusing him are Pharisees. They're of that group that does believe in the biblical teaching of the resurrection. But what's different here, did you notice what Paul says? He says, we have hope in God and we believe that there'll be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Wait a second. We're used to talking about resurrection in the context of Jesus Christ. We know Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one to rise. And there was this little group of people in the book of Matthew that also rose with them. We don't understand what happened there. These dead people came out of the graves. That's weird. But then we see this promise of future resurrection, resurrection bodies, that we don't just live forever as disembodied spirits. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we'll have a spiritual body. What's it like, Pastor? I have no idea. Mine's going to be buff, though. That's what I know. And it's going to have lots of long, flowing hair attached to it. But that's me. I don't know about you. I'm praying about that. What's this resurrection body gonna look like? Somehow it's connected to our body. It's just like Paul says, it's just like planting a seed in the ground. You plant that seed, and the seed's kind of ugly, and the seed's kind of plain, but you put it in the ground and you let it sit there a little while, just and then pretty soon out comes something beautiful and new. And Paul says, This body's gonna get planted in the ground, but something else is gonna come out of that. It came out of that thing but it's different and has a whole different kind of glory to it. So the resurrection of the just, those that were followers of Jesus Christ, we get that. But what we forget about, what we don't talk about, is that everybody lives forever. It's not just that the believers are resurrected to live happily ever after with Jesus Christ, and those that died in unbelief just are annihilated forever, and they cease to exist, and they cease to have consciousness. The Bible doesn't teach that. You can believe in reincarnation. You can believe in annihilation. The Bible doesn't teach either one of those. The Bible teaches that everybody lives somewhere forever, either with God or separated from God, either with love or apart from love, either with light or apart from light, either with life or apart from life. Apart from light equals death. People are either going to live in eternal life or eternal death and destruction. And Paul reminds us of that. And that's important for us to know. Where does Paul get this? Is this something Paul came up with? No, no, no. Don't think that. Paul gets it right from the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. You can read it for yourself. Not now. Just make a note of it. You can turn to it later. But Daniel mentions in Daniel 12 that there's a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. The resurrection of the righteous, the everlasting life. The resurrection of the unrighteous, to eternal shame and contempt. And so this is what we want people to know. This is what I want you to know. This is what you want your friends and neighbors and relatives to know, that everybody lives forever somewhere. Jesus died on the cross for your righteousness so you could live that everlasting, eternal life with God and not apart from him. He couldn't bear the thought of living eternity without you, because he loves you. So, because he couldn't bear the thought, he had to bear the sins. And he had to bear them on the cross to make a way for you to be reconciled to God. Resurrection of the just and the unjust. And because that's true, verse 16 says, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Because I believe, because we believe that there's a resurrection, that when you die, that's not it. Great question to ask people, maybe not on the first date, but hey, what do you think happens when you die? I gave blood last week. It takes eight, 10 minutes to give blood. Like I got a captive audience. The guy had to sit there with me while he was taking my blood. I say, well, I'm not going to pass up this opportunity. You're taking my blood. We're going to talk. What do you think happens when you die? And how do you know? And so Paul says, because I believe in a resurrection, because I believe that, Felix, you're not the ultimate judge. Matter of fact, Felix, the governor of Rome, and no, it's not Caesar either. It's God who's the ultimate judge. And because I know that, I seek to live a clear conscience, he says. I seek to strive to have a conscience without offense toward, number one, toward God and also toward men. That's fantastic. How many people today you think really worry about their conscience? You know, I got a sense, to have a conscience, you got to have a sense of what's right and wrong, right? The challenge we live in today, we live with today, and the challenge before I was saved is my conscience, Paul describes it, seared with a hot iron. He talks to Timothy about people who do certain things whose conscience is seared. They don't even feel it anymore. They can do things without even feeling convicted about it. Was that any of you? Before you got saved, it was me. I didn't even know it was right and wrong. You see, I was twisted I was twisted, but everybody around me was twisted too. So we all look normal. You look at everybody, you're like, well, you're doing it too. You look twisted. We look the same, but we're both twisted. And so there's no conviction because there's no outside source to show what straight looks like. They have no concept of ethical or moral straightness. And so one of the challenges that people face is because they don't have this baseline and we're trying hard not to have it. Why do you think the commandments are being taken out of public places? Because the commandments bring the baseline of right and wrong morally. And so people want to hold on to the identity and the thought that they're a good person. Everybody else is going to eternal damnation, but not me. It's those people that go, not me. So the Ten Commandments really arouse us to the existence of our own sinfulness. Well, you know how it works. The law brings about the consciousness of sin. It awakes my conscience. And you know how it is. You're driving down Route 64, heading from here toward Richmond. You're cruising along. Speed limit's 70. So to be a good citizen, that means you go 73. And you're going along pretty good, but then some guy passes you at 80. And you're like, whoa, you know, well, I am kind of late. If I follow him, he's going the same that speed and I'm going that speed. We'll be okay together. So zoom off you go in the passing lane 80 miles an hour and your cruise long got the radio going and you're just kicking back. It's a nice day until you pass that little spot right there between the trees, you know, and you see that car there with the lights on it. it, says state police on it. And all of a sudden, all the blood leaves your head and your foot instantly jumps to the brake and you pump the brake, hoping that somehow he didn't catch you. And you're, you're, you're beginning, okay, maybe I'm okay, maybe I'm okay. And you're looking in the rearview mirror, and you're looking in the rearview mirror, and you pull over into the slow lane because you want to pretend that at least you were going the right speed limit. And then you see the car pull out. And immediately, you start to concoct lies in your minds. Oh, no, it was because, uh, here's why. I didn't really know how fast I was going, officer. Oh, I can't, this is, this is, oh, I can't get caught. And he pulls out, and the lights go on, and you know you're busted. And he goes by and pulls up and pulls in behind you. And so you pull over and he keeps going right on past you. So the guy in front of you, are like, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. It wasn't me. But that law, the presence of the law brought the consciousness of sin. You see, we live in a world, when we get the Ten Commandments out, devoid of the consciousness of sin. But here's what I'll tell you, and I think you know it. People created in the image of God naturally have awareness of right and wrong. And I find a lot of people that uh, try to hide from their own conscience by blaming others, by pointing the finger at others, by condemning others. And all that makes me somehow feel better about me. But Paul would say, I always strive to have a clear conscience, a conscience without offense toward God and men. If it comes to my attention, listen, church, if it comes to my attention regarding something between me and God, hey, before I was saved, I was like David. I lived with this conscience that was guilty. And David that says in Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, O Lord, and know my thoughts. You see, Lord, you search my heart. You see if there's any wicked way in me because I don't know myself. You see if there's any wicked way in me. And you lead me in the way everlasting. You see, you need the word of God. That's why coming here can be so dangerous for you. It's good though, isn't it? It's good to be convicted of sin. That's where health begins. That's where confession begins. Confession, yeah, confession. What do I do when I'm convicted? The way to have a clear conscience before God and man. Because Paul was a rascal himself, wasn't he? He was a terrorist. How in the world can this guy say I live with a clear conscience toward God the same way you can, the same way I can? Because we're not sinless. Your kids will tell you that. But God has offered us the opportunity to confess our sin. And when we confess our sin, John tells us in 1 John, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can know that you know that you know that you're forgiven and you're restored and you're right with God. Not just that you got off because he got the guy in front of you, but that your ticket for doing 80 in a 70 mile an hour zone, your ticket's been paid for, you can go free. Having a good conscience, having a clear conscience is so valuable. We've talked about this before, haven't we, church? Not just with God, but with people. I don't want to have to run the other way in Food Lion from you. Like, I don't want to have to see you and go, oh, turn the cart around, you know, there I am in the ice cream aisle. Oh, it's them. Ah. You do, you know how that is, right? You're on the outs of somebody, but you can't, you know, you walk into the restaurant and there they are and oh, it's pretty tense because you did something or they did something. And well, instead of actually, you know, dealing with our yuck, instead of actually confronting our conflict, we just sweep it under the rug, avoid each other. And we know, but we know that we know that we know that we're not right with that person. And we go to the first service because they come to the second service. We find ways around it. But Paul says, I want to have a clear conscience with God and a clear conscience with men. As much as it's possible with you, Paul said, be at peace with all men. And if you need help with that, if you want to work that through, come and see me, figure it out, you'll never get a better night's sleep than when you've gone through that process. If they don't want to be at peace with you, that's their problem. But your conscience, listen, church, your conscience can be clear with people because you've done right before God. They're connected. You do right with people because you do right for God. And that's what Paul says. Do you think he's looking at Felix like this? Kind of like, you know, Felix, you're here in my case here. You should do what's right. There's going to be a resurrection and you ain't the final judge. Be careful how you decide. Felix, maybe you need to live with a clear conscience for God and men. I think there's a veiled reference here. Verse 17, now Paul continues, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. He was taking up a collection, bringing it to Israel. He wasn't there to cause dissension. He was there to bring unity. In the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple. We read about that before. He had gone through this purification process and was in the temple, having completed that time of ritual purification. And these Jews from Asia, they found me there. And I was not with a mob or a tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Man, just full of good advice from the Apostle Paul. If someone has something against me, let them come and tell me what they have against me. They don't need you to be the messenger. Well, Pastor Steve, so-and-so says they're really mad at you about this. Well, tell so-and-so to come and see me and tell me themselves. The church, I'm gonna say this with as much pastoral and fatherly heart as I can. We need to grow up as people. We need to grow up and learn how to handle these things in an adult way, not on social media, but face-to-face with each other. If you've got something against somebody, then go to them, go to them. It's like high school, you know, give the note to tell so-and-so that so-and-so that's, and the note goes down the line and then, you know, that's high school stuff. We want to grow up into maturity into Christ. He gives us a beautiful way to deal with these things. And Paul knows that. He says, look, if they really got something against me, these Jews from Asia who started all this, then they should be here. Paul's now saying, look, they've come to court with no evidence and no eyewitnesses. That's like contempt of court in the Roman government. Like, don't even bother showing up to court if you ain't got no evidence and you ain't got no eyewitnesses because you ain't got no case. And that's what Paul says. Or else, verse 20, let those who are here themselves say if they have found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. And when he stood before them, the issue was resurrection. That's what he says. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. That was the issue when he was with the council. Everything else fell through. He said, Hey, I believe in the resurrection. Remember, it had to do with the Jesus that had been risen from the dead and had shown himself to Paul and had given Paul marching orders about taking the gospel to Gentiles and kings and Jews and so on. Jesus can't give Paul directions if he's dead. So Paul brings that up. Hey, this is about the resurrection of the dead. This is about this Jesus who died, was crucified, died, was buried and rose from the dead. He's the one I'm following. He's the one that all the people that are following the way are following. So now Felix has both sides. Now he's just scratching his blockhead, thinking, hmm, what do I do now? He's caught between a rock and a hard place because he knows Paul is innocent. Paul's a Roman citizen, but he also knows that he's got a bad deal with these Jews and he doesn't want to upset them. So what's he do? He does what we always do. He procrastinates. He puts it off. Look at verse 22. When Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lucius, the commander, comes down, I'll make a decision in your case. So, hey, we got to have the commander come. I'm going to put off making a decision. He knows that these people believe in the resurrection. He knows that there's nothing wrong. And Luke wants us to know, and Luke wants the early church to know, that there's no offense in believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's no crime. It's not something that Paul could be convicted for. So he puts it off. How many of you understand that no decision is a decision? Because some of you, you've had all the information about Jesus Christ. His birth, his life, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the beginnings of the early church, the continuation of the church. You have all the evidence And yet you go, I'm not really sure I believe. No, what you're saying is I refuse to believe the evidence that I have and where it's going to lead me. I'm going to procrastinate a little more. Look, gang, you're not going to get any new evidence. There's not going to be any new development that proves Jesus rose from the dead. Look, come with us to Israel. We go to the tomb. It's empty. What do you want? The disciples were hiding for fear. All of a sudden, they got really, really empowered. You think that was by chance? Something miraculous had to happen. They saw Jesus resurrected. There's no new evidence. And you're procrastinating getting saved. I mean, procrastinate doing bills. I understand. Procrastinate paying taxes. I'm with you. We're there in the treasurer's office on the last day. It's like, oh, okay, I got to go finally. But please don't procrastinate your soul. When Lucius, the commander, comes down, I'll make a decision in your case. When the kids go to college and the dog dies, when I make my first million, when I retire, then I'll make my decision. Don't wait. Verse 23. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul, instead of letting him free, and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Remember, Paul's in Caesarea. He's sort of on house arrest. He's a Roman citizen. He's not convicted. So they give him a lot of freedoms. Philip and his four daughters are coming to visit him. Maybe uh, Cornelius, the centurion, is coming to visit him. He's got friends there, so they're allowed to visit him. He's got some freedom that way. The other person that's going to come and visit him fairly often is Governor Felix. Watch what happens. Verse 24, and after some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, oh, she's a colorful one. We'll talk about her in a minute. When Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, She's part of the Herod family. He sent for Paul and heard him concerning new evidence in his case against the Jews. No, 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 that's not what it says. Concerning what? Concerning faith in Christ. So he's calling for Paul. They're communicating one-on-one, one-on-two. Drusilla is there, his wife, and calls for Paul. And they're communicating about faith in Christ. Isn't that fantastic? Now, the interesting thing about this, because we're going to hear... What is the nature of their conversation? I mean, don't you want to know, like, what is the... Paul's got a one-on-one audience. Wouldn't you like to be street witnessing on the downtown mall with the Apostle Paul? Wouldn't I just sit back and go, uh, let him handle that question. <laughs> and then I'm going to sit back and I'm going to take notes on how he answers that question. I mean, what does he talk to people about? Especially Felix and Drusilla. I mean, these are powerful people. These are people you don't want to offend, right? They can make your life very difficult. They hold high places. Drusilla, she's about a 19-year-old girl right now. They married Felix and Drusilla when she was 16. History tells us she's a real gorgeous gal. And she, by the way, is not his first wife. No, she's not his second wife. She's his third wife. Oh, and by the way, she is married when he meets her and decides, me want woman. And he draws her away from the guy that she's with. By the way, Felix's name means happy. And history tells us that he promised her, hey, babe, I can make you happy like no one else can make you happy. He lays it on thick and she's discontented in her current marriage. So she up and leaves and they shack up together, get married, third wife. Drusilla, by the way, if you're taking notes, her brother is Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II. Dad is Herod Agrippa the I. That's the Herod Agrippa of Acts chapter 12, the guy who comes before the crowd wearing all the fancy clothes and gets eaten by worms because he doesn't give glory to God. Wonderful family tradition. Great grandpa is Herod the Great. You guys know the story. What a family, huh? You think you got a dysfunctional family. But it's no coincidence that here's Felix and he's got the greatest apostle that ever lived as his personal Christian tutor. I mean, who are you going to learn basic Christian 101 from other than the Apostle Paul? I mean, this is great. And so what does Paul say? Does Paul say, Felix, come on, let me tell you how much God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He could have said that. He could have said, oh, God is so gracious. Don't worry about any of that. God is so gracious. And those things would be true to an extent. But luckily, Luke recorded What are you guys talking about? You know, Luke's recording this for his book of Acts. He says, what are you guys talking about? And Paul tells him, well, I'll tell you what we're talking about. And he tells us right there, verse 25. Now he reasoned about and he dialogued about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. Interesting. What a three-point sermon. Righteousness. Hey, let's talk about righteousness. You believe in truth? I believe in truth. It was his predecessor, Pontius Pilate, that says, what is truth? Kids nowadays don't believe in absolute truth. Watch the videos on YouTube. Talk to kids. Well, maybe that's true for you, but well, whatever anybody really feels like they want to do, that's okay for them to do. There's no such thing as absolute truth. And you watch the way they have to weave around certain things to believe that there's no truth. It's like you have to check your brain at the door. Matter of fact, Believing that there's no absolute truth is an absolute truth. Hello? Is anybody listening? Anyway, it gets worse from there. So they're reasoning about righteousness. And maybe Paul is trying to tell them that hey, righteousness is measured not by who's in power on the earth, but who's in power in heaven. Maybe righteousness has to do with What God says is right and wrong. This has to do with moral and ethical purity. So now he's talking to Felix. Was Felix a good guy? I mean, other than the whole Drusilla thing, was Felix known for being a wonderfully benevolent governor who just loved people and always did what was best for them? Or was he a snake? Somebody say he's a snake. He's a snake. And so where does Paul start righteousness? Why? Because he probably said, I'm a good person. He probably looked at his life and said, hey, You know, I'm above the law. I sit in a powerful place, got a hot wife, trophy wife, got a good job. Things are good. God must be blessing me. And Paul says, well, actually, that's not necessarily the case. You see, you're greedy. Maybe he actually calls him out on some sins. See, because we know what Paul says in the book of Romans, that there is none righteous, no, not one. And Paul would include himself in there. Paul would say, look, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean I'm righteous. Paul and we and you trust in a righteousness that's not from our own works comes from God. It's a gift. You can't be any writer with God than when Jesus Christ has taken your sin and you are accredited with his life. Was Jesus perfect or was Jesus not perfect? And what if you're credited with his life? Does that mean you now have a perfect life? You're going to be more righteous than that. Anything less than that won't do. Right, church? Anything less than that won't do. So now Paul is talking with him, laying out some of these principles he's probably putting down in the book of Romans, talking about righteousness. Not your own works, not your own deeds. It comes from God. And they say, well, you know, but what ha- what do I do with my cravings? What do I do with my desires? I mean, what do I do with these things that I feel? Paul says, oh, I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about self-control. <sighs> self-control? Self-control? That's a dirty word in America. We don't like to talk about self-control. We like to talk about self-indulgence. That's where America's real problem is. We struggle not with self-control. We struggle with self-indulgence. The fruit of the Spirit, by the way, same word here, self-mastery. It's having a mastery over the self, over cravings, over longings, over desires. Particularly the word refers to sexual desires, but it can also be extrapolated out to refer to other desires. It's the same word that Paul uses when he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. See, you've been trying to do it with your own willpower. You've been trying to do it apart from God, and you're wondering why you're failing. Why can't I get free? Why can't I get loose from this? Why am I still doing this? Why do I have the same habits? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. And did I miss any? Self-control, same word. Paul knows where real self-control comes from. The spirit of God is what takes control of the self. And we don't live in a time when it's popular to tell yourself, no, you see, everybody says, well, if I feel it, it must be okay. And Paul would say, no, 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 Felix, just because you had eyes for that girl, she was another man's wife. And what you did lacked self-control. You just wanted to indulge yourself. You just wanted to fulfill your craving and it's wrong. Well, how dare you judge me? Well, Paul would go on to say, there's a judgment to come, and it's not me. It's a story I heard not too long ago. It's a challenging story. I'll tell it to you, uh, recognizing it's got an edge to it. I think you'll understand when I tell you. Uh, but it's a real story. I mean, this is real life. So I'm going to present it to you with the understanding that you'll see how it applies to this issue of self-control and conscience. And permit me to tell you the story of a man named Larry. Larry was a cancer patient, was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, never smoked a day in his life. He's 59 years old, I believe, going to the hospital for his treatments, meets a guy who was transporting patients at the hospital. They strike up a relationship. And Larry has kind of a weird sense of humor. They share some jokes, and Larry's a little bit off in his sense of humor, but they begin a, a relationship. And one day, this man asks Larry, what's the thing you're most proud of in your life? What's the thing you're most proud of? And Larry gives an answer that really takes him aback. He's not sure how to take it. And and this is where I want you to hang with me for a second. Larry says to the man, uh, I'm most proud of the fact that I've never been with a child sexually. And of course, the transporter says, that's a sick sense of humor. That's a weird thing to say. And Larry looks at him seriously and says, basically, no, you don't understand. For many years now, I've felt these desires, and I made a decision that I would never act on them. And here I am in the hospital with stage four cancer, I'm 59 years old, and I'm the most proud of the fact that I never once gave in to that craving, and I'm ready to die with a clear conscience in that matter. And I say that as an extreme example to say again, we live in a world where many things that God would call sin are now just called lifestyles or cravings. And we feel like what could be wrong with fulfilling a craving in my life? Well, it's for a woman that's not my wife. It's for a man that's not my husband. It's for a thing that God says no to. And I don't know if this guy was a Christian or not, but for the sake of Christ, Felix, could you say no to cravings in your life? Could you be filled with the Spirit and exercise self-control? Because it's not about what we think or what we agree with or what we don't agree with, whether it's not about knowing truth or teaching truth. It's about what we do in our lives. Every man is accountable, Felix, including you, including the President of the United States, including his cabinet, including local law enforcement, including there's nobody that is outside of God's jurisdiction. And every human being has to stand before God and answer for the things done in the body, what you did with your life. And that's what he's telling Felix. Oh, talk about gutsy. Now, this is interesting to me because maybe you remember years ago the start of the seeker-friendly church movement. Bill Hybels, Willow Creek Church, They got into the secret friendly thing where, hey, we're not going to talk about sin. We've done some research. We've talked to people. People really don't want to hear about sin. They really want to hear self-help kind of thing. So we're going to just give them encouraging messages. And they did this for years and years and years. And you know what they found out? It didn't create mature disciples. So years later, they said, you know what? We were wrong. And this is what Bill Hybels said himself. He said, some of the stuff that we have put millions of dollars into, thinking it would really help our people grow and develop spiritually, when the data actually came back, it wasn't helping people that much. Other things that we didn't put that much money into and didn't put much staff against is stuff our people are crying out for. He said, we made a mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people, taught people, how to read their Bible between services, how to do the spiritual practices more aggressively on their own. Because we really let people down because we didn't keep first things first. And I appreciate that in our day and age, because here we see the Apostle Paul saying, hey, some of the key issues that the church has ignored are righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Now, when I go and I stand before the Lord, I ain't standing there with my own works, because your pastor, well, he struggles with his own sin. I'm human like you, right? I don't have a perfect life, so I need a perfect lamb. And when I stand before God, I will say, God, look at my life. I will say, God, please don't look at my life. I will say, here's the sacrifice I bring the blemish free unspotted lamb and everything I've done, I've done for him. I don't stand on my own righteousness. And I wonder if he's explaining that. Now let's finish it up. Now, Felix has a chance to respond just like you have a chance to respond. Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Think Paul hit a nerve with him? Look, I think Paul came gently. I don't think he nailed Felix, like just kind of railed him and raked him over the coals about his sin. I think they were dialoguing. That's what the word reasoning means. They were dialoguing about these very, very, very central important issues about life, death, and eternity. And they had this conversation and it was troubling to Felix because Felix was living in sin. It should be troubling to talk about the judgment of God to people that are living in sin. You can still do it gently, folks, and please do. It's not that we're happy about it, but I'll tell you this. I've never been to a funeral where someone's going to hell. We just don't say it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. And I don't know what happens in a person's dying moments. I'm not the judge. That's what he's saying. There's a judgment to come, and I ain't the judge. But see, in our minds, it's everybody else. I sat with these couple kids in the downtown mall. We talked about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. I said, okay, is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Yes, they agreed. There, there is heaven. There is hell. Well, are you going to be in heaven? Well, yeah, sure. I'm going to be in heaven. You're going to be in heaven? You're going to be in heaven? You're, all four of them going to be in heaven. I said, well, who's going to be in hell? Who's the first person everybody says? Adolf Hitler. He's going to be in hell. Well, so you must have some you must have some formulated measuring stick for who's going to be in heaven. Who's going to be in hell? So we start to work that out. And that's all I think Paul did, is working these things through until he gets them to realize that, matter of fact, you're not righteous either. Me and Adolf, we got some things in common. He's just more aggressive about it than I am. He got caught. I just do it in my mind. You just do it in your imagination. But he's afraid. And he said, go away for now. Instead of saying, how can I be saved? When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you again. Uh, meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Why? Because he wanted a bribe. He just ain't getting it. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Paul stays in prison for two years, ministering to Felix, witnessing to him. He knows, in his heart he knows, but he's not willing to give in. And I hope that's not the story for anybody here this morning.